Hello and welcome to the first ever Iris Murdoch podcast being recorded at the Iris Murdoch Research Centre at the University of Chichester. Uh, my name is Miles Leeson and I'm the director of the centre and joining me today we have um, members of the centre um, coming together to talk about um, Murdoch's first novel, Under the Net, what a, you know, why not? It's the best, one of the best places to start and with, as we're starting a brand new podcast, probably the best book to start with. Joining me are Lucy Alton, one of the um, researchers here, just undertaking her PhD in Iris Murdoch and Eco-Criticism. Um, the Deputy Director of the Centre, Francis White, author of uh, Becoming Iris Murdoch, an award-winning short biography of Murdoch's early life and currently writing Unbecoming Iris Murdoch. And our very special guest, the visiting professor at the centre, um, Anne Rowe, who has written um, widely on Murdoch's work, her most recent being um, Iris Murdoch and the Writers and Their Work series for Liverpool University Press, but also well known for Iris Murdoch Literary Life and um, Living on Paper, Murdoch's Collections of Letters. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. So uh, why don't we start off by thinking about where... Uh, this novel, um, this novel sits really. Obviously, it's the first one, but sits in the canon of uh, Murdoch's works, and perhaps maybe a little bit of reflection on last year's centenary, and um, obviously the you know the, because this was um, republished, wasn't it, to, to coincide with it? I'm right in saying, aren't I, that it's in the top 100 of modern novels of the 20th century? So, um, there's a, I'm, I'm trying to think whose list that is, but it's certainly recognised as one of the top hundred in 20th century British literature. Well, I didn't know that. I'm going to have to find that. It certainly <laughs> should be. It certainly should be. Uh, it's one of the best, I think, to recommend to young students when they ask if you go and give talks at schools, which I did only last week, and I was asked at the end, where do we start? Which one is a good one? Mm. Um, Under the Net is always on the tip of my tongue, or The Sandcastle, which was just a little bit later. But it's got an engaging narrator uh, who the students can engage with. He's in his early 30s, apparently, but he seems much younger. He's got that joie de vivre, and he's just a little bit deluded and a little bit silly. So they This will be, this will be Jake. This will be Jake, yeah, sorry. Yes, absolutely. Jake Donahue, the, the first-person narrator. Um, so you've got a character that young young people can engage with, and the story carries. This, the, you know, it's a picaresque novel, mm. and we leap from disaster to disaster, from misconception to misconception, all the time. Jake looking a fool, and like you know, you like him for it. You don't dislike him. So you get carried along with the story. So I think it's one of the strongest novels in terms of characterization and narrative, and it's. I think Peter Conrad, he said it was the most unphilosophical, philosophical novel, <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. The least unphilosophical novel. Um, and there's loads of ideas in there, so much that will feed through later to her philosophy about mm. vision and choice in morality, mm. uh, about how to become good, how to become a better person. Uh, all that's there. And in terms of the way the novel's written, she had to decide whether or not she was going to write a realist novel. She was at the crossroads when this was written. Or was she going to write something that was more modernist or crystalline, as she calls it. So the novel is a, it's a self-reflexive novel in its debate about what kind of writer she's going to be. So there's a huge amount of interest there yeah. in terms of character, plot and story. 
Mm. It's the most extraordinarily accomplished first novel, debut novel. She had actually written about five novels before that, one of which was rejected by T.S. Eliot for Faber and Faber. So she'd honed her craft. It's in 20 chapters, and halfway through, between chapters 10 and 11, there's the hinge point on which the whole plot revolves. And you see this in later works as well. Fantastically careful construction, which you're not aware of on a first reading. But if you analyse it, it's really well-built, well-knit um, together like a jigsaw puzzle. And Philippa Foote, her philosopher friend, with whom she corresponded over 50 years, and whose letters are from Iris are in the collected letters of living on paper, told me in 2002 that it was her favourite Iris Murdoch novel, as it is indeed mine. And Iris apparently hated people to say <laughs> this. It was as if she'd never yeah. got any better after that. I think it's A.S. Byatt's favourite as well, isn't it? Is it? So it's it's well, interesting. The thing is that everything is there right from the beginning. Everything that you find later in the works of the 26 novels. You've got the stress on London, Paris and France. You've got dogs and spiders and masks and theatre. The philosophy and the metaphysics do come in, although in a very light way, as Anne's saying. You've got... Um, Art collections, the Wallace collection in this, art galleries, the Wallace collection in this case. You've got issues of language and silence. You've got a very, very strong sense of London, which Murdoch loved, and of the bridges and the river. You've got drinking to excess at times. Absolutely. And pubs, and you've got swimming. You've got Jewishness. You've got letters. Drama comes in and plays. The weather, eyes and hands, violence. Shakespeare comes in, again, very lightly at this stage. And this central theme of love and God, although, again, it's a very light touch in this book, and get, that gets more developed later in her thought. And one of the most interesting things for me is that in this first novel, she's choosing to be this first-person male narrator, as she did in five other later books, mm. always male, never female. And the women in this book are seen through the male narrator's eyes, and it's a very misogynistic book in some ways. And yet you've got the irony that this woman author is creating a male character to comment on women. So there are layers and layers of nuanced um, perception here and mockery and yeah. wit. But the misogyny is part of the distrust of this uh, unreliable narrator, don't you think? I do. And I think, you know, when his first description of Anna, for example, she was plumper and had not defended herself against time. It's quite evocative of, um, you know, we're going to meet Charles Araby, aren't we? And, and the way he re-sees... You know, in another podcast, again. absolutely, yeah. Yes, in a later <laughs> podcast. Um, you know, um, so he's got this idealised vision of what Anna means to him, and that's very important, what she means to him in, in, in the first instance. And then when he sees her again... Although he seems, she seems somehow to disappoint him, he still thinks he's madly in love with her. And it's very, you know, it reminds us, I think, because we know what happens next with Charles Araby and Hartley. I mean, that really does, I think that brings out so much of the richness of the book. I mean, you know, the, th the three of you, I think, have covered virtually all the main areas. And we haven't talked about music either, or musicality, or the... And the comedy of the piece as well. Oh, it's, it's, the laughter the is there all the time. So to, I suppose to kind of draw in people that perhaps haven't read this book yet, although I'm sure they will after this, could you, if you can remember, when was the first time you read this and your first impression? And was it the first Murdoch novel you read? Because it certainly wasn't mine. It wasn't mine. The Sea, the Sea was mine in 1978, uh, won the Booker Prize. Yeah. Uh, and I got it then as I read all of them as they came out. But I was intrigued. Um, Francis mentioned that hinge in the book where you realise that Jake has... Um, I think it's the, the first hinge is where he loses a little a manuscript and that's missing. And it's a tiny, tiny little few lines in the book. 
Uh, and everything hinges on that lost manuscript. But if you don't spot that the first time that you read it, I think that's one of the charms of the book. It bears rereading. When you yeah. get to the end, you think, hang on, I'm... I'm not quite sure about what's gone in, and you go back and you, you want to read it again. So you'd read quite a number before you had actually read onto the Yes, then. oh yes, quite a lot. In fact, I think I only read this um, as a student of Peter Conradi's. Right. Uh, when we you know we were studying it on, on an Iris Murdoch special study. Yeah. Francis, what about you? What I read you? it in my teens. The Unicorn was the first one I ever read and fell in love with Iris Murdoch mm. then. And then I think The Flight from the Enchanter and then Under the Net. And I love all three of them, but this is still my abiding favourite. And it's difficult to talk about the comedy without doing sort of spoilers for people who haven't read it yeah, yet. Absolutely. Because the, the later books become more and more full of tears. Jackson's Dilemma, her last book, is full of tears, as is The Green Knight. And there are, there are the odd tear in um, Under the Net, but the laughter in scene after scene and rereading it for, I don't know what, maybe the 12th, yeah. 13th time now, I laugh all over it again yeah. at the sheer hilarity of the scenes that she creates and the wit. But it's also a novel that deals sensitively, I think, with depression. Mm. Jake, Jake has that really it's bad. It's chapter state. 16 and I remember teaching this novel and one student saying I have never read in literature a more accurate account of what it feels like to be severely depressed. It's from Murphy as well, which yeah. the influences on this book go back to Raymond Cuno's uh, Pierre Mon Ami and Samuel Beckett's Murphy and Murphy um, influences that scene of total catatonic yes. depression yes. and of the working in the hospital. Yeah. as well, yeah. they're, they're taken from him yeah. Lucy, when, when did you first uh, well I got, I was introduced to Under the Net by Anne in one well of there you are special study lectures at uh, University of Kingston Kingston University so um, yeah, so I'm, I'm relatively new although this was already Anne seven years ago okay. um, just for the passage of time but you know I, I think it's the comedy too so you ha we have the depression but we also I mean I've never read a more accurate description of what it must be like to sleep on a park bench on Victoria Embankment um, before I read this novel you know and and I think you know for a novel that's about um, truth being well silence being the only truth mm. she does come out with these um, Marvel's sort of axiomatic moments, you know, if you have ever tried to sleep on the Victorian embankment, you will know that the chief difficulty is that the seats are divided in the middle. You know, I mean, she got personal experience of this. I would imagine so. After yeah. a few bevies um, down the pub. Um, you know, it's wonderful comedy, you know, and we can all relate to these moments, right? We're busy trying to understand the truth of the novel, the unreliable narrator, and, and, and you know, the, the, her, her sort of championing silence is the only truth. And then she comes out with these moments that you can just relate to whoever you are. Yeah, well, I've never thought about trying to sleep on one of those benches where they've got those iron dividers. And, and you'd read other other Murdoch novels before this one, or was this the first? No, this was the first. This was the first. Interesting. Was the first. But, it wasn't mine. I but think revisiting I'd... it, having read many more, mm. um, well, you can just see these themes emerging. Yeah, the mm. nascent. I think themes. they're all there, aren't they? Mm. In the beginning, I think mine was the bell I, 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 that I um, studied on a on a, uh, on a on a module at, um, at Sussex University. And I went back to the beginning. I think I, I'm almost certain. I was a few years ago now, but I'm almost certain that it, this was the second novel I read. And so different to the Bell, you know, the difference between the um, the rural novel, the London novel. That you know, those those differences that she has, um, both in some respects a small a small cast. I know we're going to talk about you know central characters in a minute. Um, but you can also see, you know, although they're they're so different, you can also see an awful lot of 
uh, connections between them, the ideas that she's playing around with. Certainly, I think in the first five novels that she writes up until Severed Hedge, you can see that she's playing with different forms, different genres, different. but, but yet the, the same themes run through. Um, and I'm sure that we'll talk about that. But, as, as, um, Francis, as you were saying, that this, this was, the I think, the fifth novel that she'd written, fourth or fifth novel that yes, she'd written. she'd written several She'd written then. Our Lady of the Bosky Gates, which was then destroyed, yes. probably in manuscript form. Um, so, but she'd been practising. So could we talk to maybe talk um, for a few minutes maybe about her life and about where she was, the influences, those sorts of things? Before we do that, could I just... There's something I would like to pitch in about... Francis rightly made the point about Jake's misogynistic views. I think you have to be very, very careful that you do not mix the voice of the first-person narrator with the voice the of the author. Yeah, of course. Mm. Um, th- what she's doing there is pointing out and sending up Jake mm. and those misogynistic views. Lucy, you mem- mentioned that first description of Anna. Um, there is a deliberate play with, in through the imagery of Anna with um, the Mona Lisa, La Gioconda. And what she's trying to do is build bridges and saying, okay, this is a misogynistic view of womanhood, but Jake is informed by generations of Western art, generations of of men who've been conditioned to look at women in this way. So it's not, she's not buying into it. She's trying to make women understand. I think Murdoch would have been fascinated by Mary Beard's programmes at the moment on the nude in art and how the male gaze has informed our understanding. And transformed Mm. the reality into what it wants to see. Because if you stop to look at what (laughs) the women in the book are doing, they're all professional women. Uh, you know, and even even I like to think of Mrs. Tinkham as the Earth Goddess. You know, and um, who and has a stick. And actually, yes. we were talking about how the novel invites you to. Well, I you you want to read the novel again when you get to the end. It, the, she's actually inviting you to read it again by bringing it back to the mysterious Mrs. Full Tinkham. Circle. Yes, yes. And there are lots of women in the background of the novel. You know, very very minimal parts, marginalised in the novel, but they are not marginalised in life. There are nurses, qualified. Jake thinks they all fancy him. You know, there's, there's the accountant running up the stairs. The accountant dressed in a pair of blue jeans in 1954-55, wearing blue jeans, mm. and you know, professional, working in the world, doing mm. good in the world. They're all there. And but yeah, there's all and and the miso- the misogyny and the violence comes through with um, Jake and Anna in the mime theatre, and we're gonna come on to that in a minute. Yeah. But and you've written extensively on Murdoch's life, probably the you know the person that's done the most, really, with the letters and the literary life. Where, where is Murdoch at this point in her, t- in, in her life? In the early 50s, she's writing not just this material. She's a philosopher. Um, she's having all, a variety of different relationships. Could you say something a little bit about where Murdoch is when she's writing this novel? She was 34, 35 when this was published. Uh, I think she met John Bailey at mm. this time. She had been to Cambridge for a year. She didn't want to follow the philosophy that was being produced at Cambridge. She was teaching now at St. Anne's. And I think she wanted to settle down. I think she wanted to marry. And she wanted to become a writer. And this was, you know, she didn't want to give up the teaching. She didn't want to give up the philosophy. But um, Jesus, how I want to write, she said, at this time. So I think it's a novel that... Sorry, I've lost my throat. What did you ask me, Miles? Where she was in her life. Where she where was, she was in her life. Yes, I think, well, that's where she was, very much at the crossroads. Did she want to settle down and marry? Did she want to 
become a philosopher or a writer. She decided on marriage to John Bailey. She decided on the novel, mm. um, but she didn't want to give up her teaching either. Yeah. And this and this novel does reflect on the past as well. Dedicated to Ramon Cuno, yeah. indebted to him, to Samuel Beckett, um, as she says to Murphy, as we mentioned briefly earlier. She wrote Beckett a fan letter once. Yes. <laughs> Kono, she said, um, she tried desperately hard to imitate him. Mm. I think it was very much misunderstood when it was published. I mean, the critics thought it was a novel in the realist tradition, and she was linked with Kingsley Amos. She was grouped as an angry young man. Yes. In the movement, yeah. Which is, I mean, it's, it's dedicated to Kuno, uh, and Kuno was a very much experimental writer. Uh, so I think there was a lot of misreading, because the meaning of this novel comes partly through its realism, through its relationships and its characters and its plot, and partly through its symbolism and its imagery. The use of paintings in the novel, for example, there's um, the, the Laughing Cavalier at the Wallace Collection, who is a symbol of totalitarian man, the man who looks at all his possible options in life and makes big decisions. And she points out through the metaphor of eyes, there's hundreds of eyes mm eyes that glisten, eyes that are piercing, eyes that are red with tears, all throughout the book. Uh, and this metaphor of vision links to her philosophy, mm. that it is vision, mm. not choice. Yeah. But it's all beautifully subsumed into the narrative, so much so that almost everybody completely missed the kind of novel that she was writing yeah. and the sort of novelist that mm. she wanted to yeah. be. And yet the year before she'd written Sartre Romantic Rationalist, didn't she? Mm. Where she dealt with so many of these ideas but in a, in, a di in, a different, in a different form. In a different form, where she does, you know, the, the, um, the last couple of chapters of um, Romantic Rationalist, where she does get, go in for a very strong critique of what Sartre's trying to do with the novel. Yeah. And, and he, she says he can't deal with the stuff of life. Mm-hmm. And... He doesn't like the messy contingency and he the doesn't, particularity. No, yes. Absolutely. And, and she is very strong on yeah. contingency. And you can feel that the dealing with those kind of issues and with Sartre in the novel as well, can't you? I think. Well, yes, it's a debate. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And she pays homage to him in the last chapter by having the voice over the radio singing the song which relates to the end of La Nose. Okay, that's true, absolutely, yes. We should say something about the title, shouldn't we, Under the Net? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, th this is... It, it, I aspire, I think, in, in, her, in her work, says this is the most philosophical of Murdoch's works. I think I would agree with that. Um, and yet it doesn't detract from the, the, the comedy, the fun. It, it isn't a dry philosophical novel at all, is it? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was um, uh, Colin Wilson um, said that we should imagine a transparent piece of, in his angry young men book, <laughs> that we should um, imagine a transparent piece of graph paper being draped over um, the novel and to um, draw on that kind of Wittgenstein idea that that's somehow how we can make sense of the world. But in fact, I like to think of it as sort of Murdoch being a, you know, the graph paper of the forensic scientist or the ecologist who, who notices things um, in a way that... Um, um, the sort of existentialist philosophy doesn't allow her to and you know when she I mean it's in this novel that she's starting to talk about the spider being the smallest creature whose creature gaze can be felt yeah. whose gaze can be felt um, and the birds taking um, taking charge of Hugo's flat when he's gone you know re being re-inhabited and so she's got all these things that are going to get uh, going to develop in later novels um, which I find fascinating. And the title is mentioned in the text within the book that um, Jake wrote, where he says, all theorising is flight. We must be ruled by the situation itself. 
and this is unutterably particular. Indeed, it is something to which we can never get close enough, however hard we may try, as it were, to crawl under the net. And it is a Wittgensteinian image you that she's using here. Yeah. Yes. You need to say, I think, what that image is, the net image, what it relates to. Um, yeah, I'm happy to do so. Uh, so the, the Wittgensteinian net that she's ta- that we're talking about here, and, uh, and she does it quite lightly, I think. It, it's not mm-hmm. off-putting in the novel. It's this idea that um, language casts a net over the world and that in order to actually access the reality of the world, we have to try and get underneath the net. So it's, it's something that isn't prevent, it, it's preventing us from getting to the actuality. And this is something that she's dealing with all the time. And it's coming through, and I think in a, in a minute we'll, perhaps we'll ought to give an overview of the novel so, in, so our listeners know what we're talking about. Um, but this is something that Jake's dealing with, being a translator of a French novelist himself. Um, and but also being an aspiring and being an aspiring novelist, uh, because I quite think quite often we think of Jake as being somebody who's just there for a good time. He's um, making use and indeed abuse of women, uh, and that that does come through, and that is true. But he is also trying to find his own place in the world at this particular point in time, isn't he? He makes a journey, doesn't he? First he does. Yes. He is a translator. Then he's a plagiarizer. He plagiarizes Hugo's ideas and publishes in the silence. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, he becomes what is promising to be a decent writer. So we follow that journey through. I think the existence of the novel itself is Murdoch's evocation of, of a deeply held belief that language can say something. Um, Hugo's idea that it is the detail, that we look at the detail, um, she goes along with. And that's what the novel is, a kind of forensic look, as you said, Lucy, at sort of various ideas about the human mind, about the world, uh, and about art. So it's all there, and this is her triumph, I think, in this book, that she is saying art has meaning, and it isn't just a, a net of language that we cannot penetrate. It can communicate, and it can help us to become better people. We can learn something from, yes, from art. And through that language, she's also giving, and um, she's starting to give an agency to things, which becomes a much bigger theme through later, particularly her late novels. But um, so the fountain in um, in Paris, Fontaine de Medici. But thank you, <laughs> Fontaine de Medici. Um, there is n- something compelling about the sound of a fountain in a deserted place. It murmurs about what things do when no one watches them. A gentle refutation of barking. It is the hearing of an unheard sound. A gentle refutation of Barclay. Yeah. So, so that's another thing. That's another thing. The thinginess of things. That kind of giving agency to materiality, mm-hmm. which is beginning to really and a physicality. It's a very visceral novel. Jake does judo throws and he swims. He's a very physical person, and all the way through, you have this sense of his body, of his aching head from his overdrinking, of his aching legs from walking the streets of London, of his trembling, of his sweating when he's afraid. He really inhabits his body, and we inhabit it with him. He's <coughs> very strong on physicality and on synesthetic sensation and a lot of that draws the reader in as well I think. Yeah I mean all her characters are real. I mean I see them all the time when I'm out to dinner. Mm. I bumped into Giles Araby in the lift the other day. <laughs> I mean they are awkward. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you know they are mati- completely 
blood going through their veins. Yes. I mean, that's one of her, ge- the, the part of her genius, I think. When she wrote applying for the Sarah Smithson Scholarship at Newnham, she said, I want to write about man with blood in his veins. Ah, did she? The man who yes. ru- uh, votes for or against Hitler, who fights, who goes to the cinema, who makes love, yeah. who prays. And she felt philosophy had lost this full-blooded picture of what it is to be human. She called the novels moral psychology. Mm. They are all about the inner life. And the whole impetus, the whole theory behind her writing is how to find the best way in the novel form to convey thoughts. Um, Mm. There's a wonderful essay, Thinking and Language, and and she describes how thoughts... You know, if you've got a first-person narrator, for example, how do you allow a reader to understand thoughts and impetuses that he's experiencing that he does not know himself Mm. and that was the challenge she said this is the challenge that faced Henry James how to create images and symbols that will allow the reader to know something that the narrator does not know and it's I think that generates the brilliance of the and the novel was where she could inhabit her conviction that the inner life is what matters which at the time logical positivism and analytic philosophy was not allowing and she was the champion in philosophy of the inner life which now in the 21st century is coming back into philosophy in a big way but in her day was being completely dismissed if you couldn't empirically prove something it didn't exist yeah and I I think that's the novel allowed her to do this yeah it, it did. I, I think that's um, talking talk about her, her philosophy and um, her time with the other great thinkers of, uh, of her age, Anscombe and Midgley and, and, and Full. I think it's a, you know, fascinating, but I think if we, if we go down that road, it's, we'll have to have another podcast, I think, at some point. Well, I think what Francis is saying is pointing to the fact that these novels are shape-shifting. Yes, absolutely. Why? They, they become more and more relevant as the decades go by. They are more relevant, I think, or at least as relevant to the 21st century mm. as they are were to the 20th century. Because as the 21st century is producing new issues for us to think about, and we go back to the novels and we read them in different ways, the Me Too movement, for example, issues about mental health in the young. Mm. So when you take these things that you're reading about in the newspaper back to the novels, you see characters and situations there that you completely missed. It's extraordinary how it has hardly dated as well, even though it's, what, 60, 70 years old now? Yes, absolutely. It yeah. doesn't feel... And yet it doesn't feel that. The only thing that I found dated in it on a rereading yesterday was the milk bar that Jake goes into mm. to think, which I don't think milk bars exist in London anymore. Looking up Quentin in the phone book? On these yeah. I suppose, yes. Yeah. Well, I'm old enough to remember phone books, but not <laughs> milk bars. <laughs> Who'd like to give a so? Uh, who'd like to give a very quick overview of the plot of the of the novel? Is that is, fair? <laughs> is it fair? I mean, it's it's it's, it's, it's probably a difficult one. Is, is it about Jake's journey, or is it about Murdoch trying to communicate something to the reader about the inner life and language, or is it both? Well, it works on so many levels, as all Murdoch's works do. Because I was getting a little afraid that our discussion of the philosophy and the art and everything was making it sound a very heavy novel. And in fact, reading it as a teenager and reading it now for a first time, it's just a wonderful <laughs> picaresque romp. It is hilarious. It bounces you, as Anne said at the beginning, from very Manic yeah. situation. Yeah, I There's we should, elements yeah. in it. We Very should say pacey. that you don't need to know nothing, these, these nothing details to enjoy, to enjoy it. Nothing, nothing yeah. to enjoy it. It has the most wonderful Alsatian dog in it, who is a big character in the plot and whose escapades are just hilarious. And I think you can just enjoy it on so many levels. The Midnight Swim in the Thames. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's a tour of London. It is. 1950s Which she knew London. so well. Yeah. 
Yeah, so um, so the the novel opens with Jake having come back from from France. Um, having um, he arrives in New Haven, he's waiting for the train. He's going back to London to meet um, to meet his kind of. Who is Finn? Is he a ma- is he a manservant? Is he a friend? It's 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 a sidekick. It's a it's a sidekick, isn't it? That um, enhances his own ego, but yeah. he doesn't seem to know anything so, about it. So he, well, one he, of the pairings that Murdoch uses throughout, and which comes up right in the last novel, is this master-servant relationship, yes. which has a slight root in um, Jeeves and Worcester, as well as other as Shakespearean sort of um, master-servant relationships. Mm. But I love the way with this first novel that you are thrown in at the beginning. You're not introduced to Jake until much further on. He gives his backstory later, but she starts with. When I saw Finn waiting for me at the corner of the street, I knew at once that something had gone wrong. And there you are, you're caught on that hook. What's happened? What's gone gone wrong? wrong? And that is the start of the unfolding of him being thrown out of the flat by Madge, with whom he and Finn have been living rent-free for much time, having to find somewhere to live. And that starts the whole process of events. But curiously, because you're introduced to Finn so early, I think that... Sort of tunes you into the solipsism of of Jake, don't you think? Because yeah. he's, he's he's obviously important to him, but he seems. But Jake's telling us he's irrelevant. Almost. But we don't know very much about Jake either no, at that stage. But no. we don't ever. What? Where was? Where was? Have shattered Irish. nerves. I'm not going to tell you how I got Absolutely. them. Absolutely. Yes. And, and we never know. He's we don't know where he grew up. We don't know if he had brothers or sisters. We don't know who his parents no. were. He says. I mean, most I've, I've read that you know he's an Irish yeah. narrator. I can't find He does that. say that, yes. He, I think he says, but my name is Jake Donoghue, but don't read too much to that, too much into that, because I've only ever been to Dublin once. You didn't bother about that, yes. That's true. And that's, you know, yes. so, uh, and I've, I have tried and looked. I don't like, I don't like an, being on my own. Yes. Yeah, but I'm not going to tell you anything about that either. No, mm. we do, he is a mystery. Mm. We don't know what has shattered his name. We don't know what horror. Maybe, I've always thought maybe he's been in the war. Yes. Uh, but he can't talk about it. And that's to do with the theme of silence and language and things mm. that what can you can talk about and things that you simply can never say. Mm. So at the centre of Murdoch's moral vision is love, and she defines love as attention to the reality of the other. And right from this first novel, you've got Jake saying, I consider Finn to be a part of my universe, and I don't think he has one of which I am a part, which is so central. And at the end, Finn surprises him completely by doing something that Jake hasn't allowed for in his perception of Finn. And yet there's little clues throughout when he says, I think I'm a constant source of entertainment to Finn. (laughs) And so Finn is enjoying Jake's being in the same way, but Jake only just dimly intuits this. Mm. Yeah, well, I was going to um, continue on your theme of love. I mean, you know, he's, he's, I'm not a mystic about women, he says. I like the women in novels by James and Conrad, who are so peculiarly flower-like and who are described as guileless, profound, confident and trustful. I mean, he's sort of, he just can't work it out, and relate, but it's all about him. Um, the women that I know are often inexperienced, inarticulate, credulous and simple. Um, I mean, he just seems fairly clueless that he's got to sort of look outside of himself to, 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 to work it all out. And, but then you see Anna captivates him because she's deep. Um, I cannot think what it is about her that would justify me in calling her mysterious. And so he's suddenly realising that, that he's got to notice um, the love outside of himself and it's not all, all about him. Yeah. Um, and sorry. to find a person inexhaustible um, 
and, th and this is what he's, you know, he's sort of having to work mm. out, isn't Because we've got three major female characters, haven't we? We've got Anna, we've got Sadie, and we've got Madge, and Anna and, Anna and Sadie are sisters. And, of course, there, there is that kind of love square with who loves who and what's going on, and everybody loves somebody else who doesn't love them but loves somebody else. And it and, and a lot of the comedy, but also some of the, some of the, the element of tragedy within Jake's life also turns on that, doesn't it? Well, I think there's a lot going on. Yeah. Uh, with I mean, on the very basic point about her philosophy of love, that it is attention to the other, Jake has to learn that you have to really see these people, hence mm. the metaphor of eyes, that you have to look and take yourself out of the equation and concentrate on them completely. I think the other thing that's going on that I hadn't noticed for years is a very deeply spiritual aspect to human life that Jake comes to learn. Part of this comes when he's swimming in the Thames. Mrs. Tinkham, that otherness that is an, another person, an individual who exists, but also another aspect of the human soul, yeah. which is that which aspires to the good and to God and to another reality outside. Yeah. For me, Mrs. Tinkham almost book, she bookends the novel, doesn't yes. she? Yes, and her cats. And her, yes. and her cats. The unknowability of the world. Why does Mrs. Tinkham's cats who she's been trying for years to make this with the Siamese, uh, and it won't never happen. And then they all come out, also completely different. And I think the, the last words of the novels, it's just one of the many wonders, wonders of the, of the world. world. Yes. And that's what it's about. It's about all the things we've talked about, this concrete reality, the inner life, the blood going through the veins. It's also about a spiritual reality as well. You asked earlier on, Miles, where Murdoch was in her life at the stage that she mm. wrote this book. Through Jake's perception of Anna, she's perhaps unconsciously quite self-revelatory, I think, and it's something that John Bailey picks up on in his memoirs of his wife, which were written when she was ill with Alzheimer's later on in her life. And he describes Anna as having a talent for personal relations. She yearns for love as a poet yearns for an audience to anyone who will take the trouble to become attached to her. She will immediately give a devoted, generous, imaginative and completely uncapricious attention, which is still a calculated avoidance of self-surrender. Her private life must be an almost full-time activity, and her existence is one long act of disloyalty. When I knew her, she was constantly involved in secrecy and lying in order to conceal from each of her friends the fact that she was so closely bound to all the others. Now, would you agree, Anne, from working on the letters, that this is a fair description of how Murdoch herself was living Abs at this time? Absolutely, absolutely. But it was only one part of who she was. She was an accomplished philosopher, um, a very good teacher. She was a writer. Uh, and a poet, as we now know. She was writing poetry as well. So, yes, I would go along with that. And I often wonder how far these many relationships were, in fact, research for her novels. Mm. That there was quite a deliberate attempt to get to the heart of what made people tick. Why did one person fall in love with, a, with another? What happened when that love was withdrawn? How people... It was a forensic laboratory, laboratory yes. exploration of the human soul Absolutely. as well. One of the best things Peter Conradi has ever said about <coughs> her, I think, is that she asks the question, what, it is what is it like to? Mm. Including what it is like to vomit, <coughs> which comes up brilliantly oh. in The Black Prince. What's it like to sleep on a park bench? Exactly. And she's asking all the way through her life and, as you say, bring it into her novels, mm. what, it is, what is it like to be head yes. over heels in love madly? Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, Wildly so. What is it like to be jealous? What is it like what to feel murderous? To be 
sexual, I mean, she's brilliant on sexual obsession. Yet you read that letter to Chrysler in 1967 in the letters, and she says, you know, it, it's it's a void in her. She says, I'm I'm very misconceived sexually. Uh, I'm just not all that together. But that obsession and that jealousy is something she takes she, from Proust, who's yes. mentioned in this novel and comes throughout her oeuvre, and she yeah. takes on from Proust's work what happens to people when they totally obsess, er erroneously. Yeah as Swan does about Odette, her characters do again about the people that they see, Anna, or as you were saying, Charles and Hartley in The Sea, The Sea. They create something of their own imagination, foist it onto the person or project it onto the person and then have this obsessive, jealous relationship with them. It's fascinating. So it might be a good time then to talk about the, one of the, one of the I suppose one of the most difficult scenes of sexual mm -hmm. obsession in the mime theatre, Jake and Anna, and the the violence that he inflicts on her, and mm -hmm. I think would, we would read very differently now. I know we were talking a little bit about this this yeah. earlier. And do you want to say a little? Because I know you know you've written on this, you've thought about that that scene a lot, having taught this I novel. I have because uh, I taught this novel for years. Uh, you won't remember us discussing in any great detail that scene in the mime theatre where Jake throws Anna into a judo hold. Um, the students I talked at the peak of the Me Too movement were very concerned about this uh, and were implying that it was bordering on, on an attempted rape. And I said, hang on, I don't see this at all. So we went back and read it again. And there is a legitimate way of reading that scene where Anna, Jake says that she begins to laugh. Mm. You know, he throws her on the floor and she just remembers how it used to be. And she says, ah, oh, yes, you know. Uh, but, and she says, I'm, I can't stay now. I have to go. Uh, don't contact me, I will contact you. And she gets herself out of a very sticky situation. Younger students were thinking this was, may have been rather a clever ploy on Anna's part, that she knew how dangerous he was and she was clever enough to manipulate her way out of it. Whether it's right or wrong, it's, com this could go on. Well, the power yeah, relations the, aren't there, though, are they? It's, He's it's, not, yes, you know, it's about um, power relations. The interesting I'm thing... I'm not disagreeing, but yes. I just don't quite... Yeah. I don't necessarily see it like that. I think we have to be careful not to overlay these things. Absolutely. Sometimes. I think they inform. They do, but there is also another little technical thing about um, to notice about that scene. Where he holds Jake, Anna, in his arms in a sort of judo hold, with his arm cradled around her head. You mentioned the Fontaine de Medici. Mm. The statue that he comes to see, that is replicated. Now, I agree with you, but not reading too much significance into these things. But there is a deliberate replication of the, see, of the holding of this bronze statue. Mm. The woman is in his arms, which exactly replicates that moment in the text. Here. And Jake learns that when he was looking at Anna at that moment, all this happens unconsciously, and this is part of her idea that art can educate us through the subconscious mind. Jake understands that he was not seeing Anna, that he was manipulating, and he learns something because the gaze of the bronze statue um, of the god into the, the woman's face is so different to the way that he looked yeah. at women. So... I think he's quite dangerous. Uh, yes. I think he's very... Yeah. You know, going through the Jardin des Tuileries. You know, I think he's stalking her. I, yes. you know, yeah. I think it's... I, I don't think there is no simple one way to interpret any point of that text. 
And I think that the way these younger students were thinking about it is as legitimate as the way that I had always seen it. But that, and that, sorry. You know, that, 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 it, that's what Iris Murdoch's novels do. There is always this gap, this gestalt process. There's the novel and there's the reader and there is a space. And the pertinence for, that you were talking about. Yes. The relevance, yeah. There is a gap for people to debate and I think that's what keeps the novels alive. Mm. That's what will continue to keep them alive. So if that's how younger students want to come back and debate this, I think we have to, as Murdoch scholars, allow this and allow these texts to be transformed um, if, even if we want to defend them against that the scenes interestingly talking about the, talking about that, that scene in Paris when he's, when, he's, when he's back there and he's and he's chasing and of course he doesn't you know what does he find in the end we'll, we'll think about that in a minute but it's more like a dreamscape mm. yeah. it really is kind of this kind of fantasy that he's living out within Paris and it's um, kind of almost a, in some regards a tourist vision of Paris that he has he's wandering through with the crowds trying to find this fantasy woman it's quite different from the perception that he has of her when she's in London, even though she escapes. I think this links with your point about environment. Mm. How we are affected is a wonderful London novel and Jake is healed by his London surroundings, the architecture and everything that envelops him in his home uh, in London. But in Paris, he is lured into this dream world. He is as affected by the ambience of Paris and he becomes the forsaken lover after yeah. looking, you know, so it's, it's, it's a, a way of conveying yeah. that obsessive behaviour, mm. isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and also an homage to <coughs> Pierre Mon Ami as well, yes. to, to Cunot yeah. at, at that point in time. I mean, she says to him in a letter, I, I will owe so much, always owe so much so to you. And, and I think you, f you feel that in that scene particularly. It's mm. about the malleable nature of the human mind. Yeah. How you put a, a person in one environment and they behave in one way. Mm. You take that person out and put them in another environment and behaviour changes, thoughts change and we respond differently. Yes. So it's, it's hugely significant. Yeah. And this novel was very well received when it was published, wasn't it? Obviously it, it, it put um, her on the map. It put, it put her on the map. She came yeah. second in the Cheltenham Literary Prize only to Bridget Brophy's Hackenfeller's yes. Ape. Yes, indeed. Um, more on their relationship, yep. I'm sure, in a later <laughs> podcast um, and, yeah. um, and their work. But it, it, it put her on the map, and um, immediately she was in, I suppose, London literary circles, wasn't mm -hmm. she? And she became, in her kind of her, her circle of influence and her circle of friends did grow very rapidly after that. Yes, she, I can't remember what year she found a flat and began to live in London. I should know this. I think with, well, late 50s. Late 50s, well, yes. there you are. Um, you know, that would account possibly for the fact that she wanted to be part of vibrant she society. She London as part of her uh, life yes. as well as Oxford. Yeah, interestingly on her biography on the back, on the um, inside flap of the, I think on the, um, on one of the very early editions, part of her, I think the last line of her biography was, I like to be alone in London. Mm -hmm. And that, that idea of her as, as a flaneuse, as somebody who's yes. walk, walking the city, yeah. knowing it and writing about it. And it comes through so many times in so many other, I mean, there are a section of novels that are the London novels stretching from under the net right the way through to the Green Knight. I mean, she uses London as a, not just as a set, but as a character as well, with its, with its own interesting quirks and features. Hugely symbolic. Mm. Yeah. I mean, every um, landmark in London has a symbolic meaning that links to the inner life of the characters who roam those streets. Yeah. They are never there. They, well, they are there simply in and for themselves because they exist and they're part of the world that we live in. And she wants us to really look at those things. But on another level, on an imagistic, symbolic level, they are speaking 
with very profound messages about the characters themselves. And you spoke of her just now as a flaneur's Miles. She was very aware of this concept of the flaneur mm. and pokes gentle fun at it when she's in Paris. Well, when she, when she, when Jake is in Paris in this novel. She says, I stopped to look at Paris. Its gentle colours awoke for me, dear but not violent under the July sun. The fishermen were fishing and the flaneurs were flanning. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I, I remember that. And she and she loved Paris. She went there at least once a year for for twenty thirty years of her life, didn't she? And she it, and her relationship yes. with Paris is is one that hasn't really been talked about yes. that much at all. Um, but it it is profound. I, I mean, I think the novel's going to um, be um, you, you will always be regarded as a recording of nineteen fifties London. That, yeah. You know, it, it will, that that its historical context will start to come into play, won't it? Yes, I think I, I think it absolutely will. But I, I suppose as we come towards the end of our time together today, um, let's put this novel in context with the context with the twenty five. Where does it sit? Of, interestingly enough, I, I went back to um, one of those big coffee table books. It's called the, the Thousand Books You Must Read Before You Die. Um, I mean, it's always an interesting thing to do. But um, I th it's gone through s several different editions, and yet there, I think there's four Murdoch novels in there, one of which is still under the net. I think I wrote that. You might well have wrote <laughs> did you, you wrote that I'm entry. I'm pretty sure I did. I've, I've, I found you, it in you a... You secured its place or I you found wrote it, about it? Well, I found it in, its, in a bookshop. Yeah. Um, and I was flicking through and I thought, well, I wonder if they've got Iris Murdoch in here. <laughs> and I got through to Under the Net and it said A. Oh, and I thought, who else is writing? <laughs> I think it was me. And it was one of the six of Murdoch's novels that were chosen by Vintage Classics to reissue for her centenary year with an introduction by Charlotte Mendelssohn. Yes. So they're, and, they're doing and Charlotte's been a, a wonderful ambassador yes. I think, for last year. listed in, I referred to this earlier, but far too vaguely, it's listed as one of the 100 best novels, modern library, 100 best novels of the 20th century. I would put it in and the top the only, 10. And that's the only Murdoch. Yeah, um, my personal. Your, your, your personal top 10 of Murdoch. I would put it in the top three. Oh, interesting. Yes, my favourite novel is often the one I've just read, <laughs> yeah. so it's obviously my favourite today. But um, it was a delight to go back to it, having read it as my first Murdoch novel, and now as my mm -hmm. novel. It's um, you know, it's definitely you can see the themes um, in, in embryonic form, and you're just you know, and it's exciting. Yes. To get and to this see. distinctive new voice, she is not yes. like anybody yeah. else. This could only and be. And I Murdoch. love the pace of it. Yes. I love it. It's you can read it on so many levels. What did you think of it when you first read it? When you were taught the novel? Well, oh, fairly terrifying telling Anne Rose. <laughs> Um, did you enjoy it? You're not quite sure. Um, um, yes, I did because because of the pace, I think, mm -hmm. and it was definitely and because it comes back round to Mrs. Tinkham. I know it's a it's a it's a technique. She's making us go back round again, and it's, it's like circularity. It's just so uh, that it was very skillful, but there were so many things I had yet to. You know, seeing future novels and then to come back to it, yeah. absolutely delightful. Char characters especially. Mm. I'm not. Um, I don't think we'd for one minute we'd say, oh, these are just sort of preliminary sketches for great for for greater novels later on. By yeah. any means, the characters, and yet you can see her abiding interest and indeed obsessions, written in from from yeah. from Jake. Yeah. Mm. Um, through to Jackson. To, to Jake to Jackson, absolutely. She learns from this novel. You never get those dense. I mean, it always used to flummox me why students would come back and have enjoyed it so much because there are huge, dense 
platonic dialogues in there, and I, I would think this, this might put them off, and it never did. Yes, it, it never uh, did. Uh, you know, about a third of the way, and it yes. slips in. It slips into yeah. the sort of platonic dialogue that you would find in um, in her work and on art. You know, on the yes. Eros. Yeah, absolutely. But you have those axiomatic bits. You have the comedy. You have those the scenes that she paints, like a painting that she refers to Minton, and then suddenly she's being a an architectural artist herself. I mean, it's, it's, it's got so much it's going on. So clever. This is a novel that won't um, won't be easily forgotten. I don't think. No. It's certainly it's one. It's going to run and run. I think so. Um, almost all, almost always. I, I say if somebody hasn't read a Murdoch novel, I always say, "Oh, pick up the bell." Mm. You know, I mean, mm. we know that she referred to it as her lucky novel. But I, I, you know, working on this today and, and and talking to all of you, I think perhaps under the net might be a better a better route in because mm. it does contain so much. I um, think particularly. For younger people, yes, if, absolutely. If somebody's maybe yeah. in their forties, stick with the bell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My thanks to um, Anne Rowe, to Francis White, and to Lucy Alton, and I'm sure that with the success of this podcast, there'll be another in the future. <laughs>